Good everyone. Hello. You know, after uh, 10 weeks or so, it's our last week in Ezra and Nehemiah to, tonight. Probably seems a bit sad when we finish a book of the Bible. Someone did point out uh, it's taken longer for us to read Ezra and Nehemiah and preach through it than it took him to build the wall around Jerusalem. But uh, anyway, so I'm going to pray for us as we start, but open up Nehemiah chapter 13 there. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for all we've learnt in the book of Nehemiah and in the book of Ezra before that. We thank you for the encouragement it is to see that you are a God who keeps your promises, who preserves your people no matter what. Uh, but we thank you also for the challenges we've received to live godly lives, uh, seeking to bring honour to your name, seeking to be different for the world. Uh, and we pray that tonight uh, both of those things will happen again. We'll be encouraged as we remember your promises to us, but also challenged to live for you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, do you know that it's uh, only 24 days until the new year? You thought I was going to say Christmas there, but uh, until the new year, it's 2020 in 24 days. Uh, for some reason, 2020 feels like a big year. I don't know why. It just sort of feels like it's one where, where you care that it changes your year. But anyway, new year in just a little while. So just out of interest, who made a New Year's resolution back at the start of 2019. Did anyone make a New Year's resolution? I'm not going to ask you to share what it is so you can safely put up your hand. Did anyone make a New Year's resolution? Few people. I'll ask another question. Who, because I knew this would happen, who has ever made a New Year's resolution? There, you can feel more comfortable. There, there, that's good. There you go. Who has ever kept a resolution they've made at New Year's time? Couple of, wow, faithful people. Wow. Did you do what I do and make a resolution to do something you already do? So, you know, you know <laughs> I make resolutions that I will keep drinking lots of Coke and eating lots of chips, you know, rather than to do the opposite, you know. I will keep sleeping in rather than getting up early and exercise. They're, they're the sort of resolutions you can keep. But normally, the thing with resolutions is, and the reason we make a joke of them is, you don't keep them. That's the thing with, the, the whole joke about New Year's resolutions is you resolve to do it on the 1st of January, you resolve to say, I'm going to set my alarm half an hour earlier and get up and do exercise this year, even though I haven't done it for all the years before, and then you do it for a week or two, and then you have a late night, and you, the alarm goes, I say, oh, I'll just hit snooze today, and then you just hit snooze tomorrow, and then you hit snooze, and you know how it goes, and then you actually set your alarm 15 minutes later than you used to set it, because you get used to sleeping in again. Or you say, I'm not going to eat fatty foods, I'm not going to eat chips, and all that sort of stuff, and then you come to church, and you come out to the hub, and there it is, and you think, I don't want to be you know, not in fellowship with these people, I'll eat chips with them, <laughs> and you break your resolution. We, we begin with grand aspirations, and then reality sets in, that's how it works. In chapters 10 to 12 of Nehemiah, flick back to chapters 10 to 12, we missed chapters 11 and 12 last week, because we uh, had the confirmation, but uh, I'm going to give you a bit of a summary here. Chapters 10 to 12, the returned people of Israel made some powerful resolutions, they made these vows before God. They're actually real highlight chapters, not just of these books, but of the whole Bible, the whole Old Testament, because what's happened is they've come back from, from captivity to re-establish, to rebuild Jerusalem. They've rebuilt the temple, remember we saw that in Ezra, uh, they've started worshipping God properly again. Now under Nehemiah, they've rebuilt the wall, so it's safe to live and worship in Jerusalem. Uh, but most importantly, and this is all through both Ezra and Nehemiah, they started reading God's law again. So you see it over and over again. And again, we read from the book of Moses, it's talking about the first five books of the Bible. They've read God's word again and realized how they have to live 
in response to the God who loves them and saved them. And then in chapter 10, flick back there, they get serious and they make a vow that they will follow God's law, but it's not just one of those general vows, we'll follow your law. They say, we're going to follow God's law specifically in each of the areas where we have just every time messed it up. And so they said, we are just not going to join ourselves in marriage with the other nations, like we've always done, and let idolatry come into, into God's people. We're not going to work on the Sabbath. We're going to do all our work in six days. We're going to do what God called us to and rest and give Him a day at the end of the week. And we're going to get serious about tithing. We're going to give 10% to support the work of the Levites and the priests so that we can worship God properly at His temple. You see, this wasn't just a new city being built. This was a spiritual rebuilding. That's what's happening in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah. And we're just celebrating rebuilding a wall. They were celebrating that God was making His people new again. And this time, they were going to get it right. Uh, and wouldn't it have been great? Because chapter 12 is this great celebration. It's like a party. So if you go to the end of chapter 12, from verse 27 on, they dedicate the wall and, and they have this great party where they go around singing and everyone hears them all around the countryside. They're worshipping God, giving thanks for it all. And it would have been wonderful if the book of Nehemiah had ended at the end of chapter 12. It would have been, wouldn't it be great to end the book of the Bible with a party? You know, there it is. They've got it right. But alas, that's not what happens because then there's chapter 13, tonight's chapter. And what chapter 13 is, is sometime later. You know, like when it, when it says that in the movie, sometime later and you come back and things are different. Well, that's what happened here. Nehemiah has been away and now he comes back. Look at verse 6. It says, while all this was happening, I was not in Jerusalem because I had returned to King Artaxerxes of Babylon in the 32nd year of his reign. It was only later that I asked the king for a leave of absence so I could return to Jerusalem. Then I discovered the evil. Sounds ominous, doesn't it? And we'll come to the evil. But before we get to the evil things he discovered, I want you to see the issue. The issue was they'd made these commitments, but they hadn't lasted. They'd made changes while Nehemiah, the strong leader, was there overseeing it. And isn't that actually true of us sometimes? That that we make changes so that other people will see us make the changes, but the only changes that last are changes that come from a changed heart, where, where actually the change is within us, not just because we're trying to impress the leader or the friend or whoever it is. So anyway, once Nehemiah went, they just slipped back into all the things they used to do. So what was the evil that he discovered on his return? What did they revert to? Well, there were four things, and you'll see them there printed on your outline, so take out your outline, but they'll also be up here on the screen. The first thing that happened was they allowed the temple to be defiled. This is in verses 1 to 9. So the issue here was God's Word was very clear that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. So I just have to ask at this point, are there any Ammonites or Moabites? No, it's a joke. Uh, and the reason was, was because of the way they treated God in the past. Okay, so way back in the book of Numbers... Israel had been coming through, needed water and food, and these nations told them to get lost. And instead of blessing them by giving them water and food, they cursed them. Uh, and so God said, no Ammonite or Moabite shall ever enter the assembly of God's people. Now, there are examples of people converting from those nations. So Ruth comes from one of those nations, and she marries Boaz and becomes one of the forebears of Jesus this is talking about Ammonites who continue to be Ammonites or Moabites who continue to be Moabites. 
They are not allowed in God's temple. They're not allowed to bring their idols in and their idol worship in. And so at the start, the Israelites listen to that law and they deal with it, but then Nehemiah goes away and they let it slide. And Tobiah the Ammonite. Now, for those with a really good memory, back in Nehemiah chapter 3, Tobiah the Ammonite was one of the guys causing trouble for Nehemiah. But anyway, Tobiah the Ammonite, they don't just let him come into the temple, they let him set up his house in the temple. So they take a storeroom from the temple, take out the things that are there to be used for the worship of God, throw them out somewhere else and let Tobiah set up his house in the temple of God. Now, why on earth would they do that? Well, you get a hint there when it tells you that the priest and Tobiah were related by marriage. Uh, Now, that's a problem in and of itself. It might have been financial. The point is, they disobeyed God's law. So when Nehemiah gets back, what does he do? Well, he doesn't pussyfoot around. Look there at verse 8. He says, I was greatly displeased and threw all of Tobiah's household possessions out of the room. I love Nehemiah. He's a man after my own heart. There is no two weeks notice for Tobiah. There's none of that. It's get out and here's your stuff. It's just straight on. There you go. And then verse 9, I ordered that the rooms be purified and I had the articles of the house of God restored there. What does Nehemiah do? He takes drastic action so that God's house, the temple is not defiled. Now, this sin actually goes with the fourth sin that Nehemiah discovers. So, if you just thought I had my numbers wrong on the outline, I didn't. Uh, We're jumping to the fourth sin second. So, jump down now to verses 23 to 31. That's what we're looking at now. And if you've been following for the last 10 weeks, you will know that there was one issue that came up over and over and over again for Israel. What was that issue in Ezra and Nehemiah? It was the one sin they kept doing over and over again, the fact that God didn't want them intermarrying with people from the other nations and they did this over and over and over again. Now we've dealt with this so many times, I'm not going to go through it all again but remember it wasn't that God was racist, that wasn't what the issue was, it was the fact that the other nations were idolaters, the other nations didn't worship the one true God and so God was quite happy if these people converted and came and worshipped him, well, they could be included in the people of God. Again, that's what Ruth did when she came and married Boaz. But what he didn't want was people intermarrying with people who worshipped other gods. And in particular, he didn't want them to bring their idols into Israelite homes. And more than that, he didn't want them raising confused children, children who were torn between two gods, uh, and especially children who worshipped other gods who should be worshipping the God of Israel. Now, Nehemiah is more gentle than Ezra was. Remember back in the book of Ezra a few weeks ago, Ezra actually made everyone divorce, kicked all the non-Israelites out and even kicked the children from mixed marriages out. Ezra was full on, you know. Nehemiah more gentle. Look from verse 23. It says, In those days I also saw Jews who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon and Moab, Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples, but could not speak Hebrew. I rebuked them, cursed them, beat some of their men and pulled out their hair. I forced them to take an oath before God. I I said he was a little more gentle. Uh, You have to understand this. You have to understand how many times they had done this and how many times Ezra and Nehemiah had said, God's word says, don't do this. The time for gentle rebuke was long gone. That, that was years ago. They, they, they tried that. It was now the time for drastic action. But it's worth asking, 
Why were these things so serious? Why was the purity of God's temple and the purity of God's people so important? And the key word there is purity. I've got to underline a word, that's the word, purity. You see, the temple was where you met with the sinless God of the universe. The, the temple was where you met with the God who could not tolerate sin. It had to be pure. So to allow someone in there who worshipped other gods, that was just to mock God, to mock His righteousness, to mock His holiness, to say, we don't care about you, God. And then God's people, Israel were God's people, and they were saved to be a light to the world. The whole idea of them, of Israel existing, was that other people would look at them, see how different they were, and then want to know the God who had saved them and worshipped them. They had to stand out. So when they just assimilated in with other nations and accepted other nations' idols and other nations' practices, they were useless. Now, of course, we don't apply this directly to us. We are not Israel in that sense. We're living after Jesus. So we don't worship God in a temple. We don't have to keep this building pure. We don't have people who stand at the door and check that you're not an Ammonite or a, or a Moabite or that sort of thing. We don't have a temple because God has sent us the true temple. That's what the New Testament tells us. You don't meet God in a building anymore. How do you meet God? By coming to Jesus, who is God with us, Emmanuel, as we remember at Christmas, Christmas time. But then the New Testament tells us we are God's temple now. We, collectively, the people of God, are where God dwells by His Spirit, in and amongst His people gathered. And so this, the people of God, this is what must be kept pure now. Look at what God says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. He says, don't you yourselves know that you, and all of those are plural yous, we don't have those in, in English, but, but He's saying, you together all of you together, you are God's sanctuary. That's another word for temple. He says, don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple and that the Spirit of God lives in you? If anyone destroys God's sanctuary, God will destroy him. For God's sanctuary is holy and that is what you are. Now, what's he saying there? I hope you can see it. He's saying, you need to keep this people pure. You see, we don't keep God's temple pure by kicking Ammonites out of a building. We keep God's people, God's temple pure by making sure no false doctrine is taught from here. That we kick false teachers out of the church and sadly, too many denominations haven't done that in recent years. We do it by not allowing sin to fester in the life of the church. See, that's how someone defiles God's New Testament temple. They do it by leading people into sin, by leading people away from trusting in Christ for salvation. And the purity of the New Testament people of God, well, it's not a racial purity. The, the, the New Testament people of God is not divided on ethnic lines. It, it's for Jew and Gentile, it's for, for people from Kenya and it's for people from Somalia, it's for people from China, it's for people from wherever it is we come from. It's faith in Jesus that unites us, whatever nation we're from, but Jesus says, no, 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 you don't stand out by being a different race. You stand out by the way you live, by the way you treat people, by the way you conduct yourself. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? 
no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled on by men. See, what good is salt on your food if it doesn't taste of anything? It's only good to be thrown away. Well, Jesus says, what good are Christians if we don't stand out from the world? What, what good are Christians if we're not different to the world out there, if we don't live God's way, no matter how the world's living? That's the point. Now, we don't go around pulling one another's hair when we see sin in one another's lives, but we must take the purity of God's people as seriously as Nehemiah does. Because if we don't stand out for the gospel, if we don't stand out in the way we live, we may as well just go home. It's a waste of time. And that's why the New Testament has all those passages about if you see your brother or sister in unrepentant sin, go and challenge them. That's what that's about. And then if they refuse to repent, take, take someone else with you. Because it's a serious thing when Christians live unrepentantly, when we don't seek to be what God wants us to be, distinct and different from the world. Well now, back to Nehemiah, because he found another sin had sneaked in while he was away. This is the second one, back to verses 10 to 14. Go there with me now and look at verse 10. He said, I also found out that because the portions for the Levites had not been given, each of the Levites and the singers performing the service had gone back to his own field. So it's interesting, he gets there and he goes, what are the Levites out doing in the field? Why are they growing wheat and farming lambs and doing all that sort of thing? And he, he must have thought, maybe I should rebuke them, they're not doing their job probably. But then he realised, because they've got to pay for themselves to live. See, the problem wasn't the Levites, the problem was that the people weren't doing what they had resolved to do. The people had said, we are going to tithe. We're going to give 10% of our income to ensure that the Levites can make sure we worship God properly. But now, obviously after a while, they thought, I wouldn't mind a bit of extra cash, and I don't know what those Levites are doing up in the temple. I might keep it for myself. I might not give all the temples. I might keep it all to myself. And so the Levites had to leave the temple and the proper worship of God ground to a halt. Now, again, we are not under the Old Testament law. We are not required to, nowhere in the New Testament does it say, you must tithe, you must give 10% of your income uh, to the work of the temple. But the New Testament does call on us to generously support gospel work. That's the New Testament's call. We're called to prayerfully and carefully work out how we can use the money God has given us to generously and sacrificially support gospel work. And we're called to give from our first fruits, send aside at the beginning, if you like, not just from our spare change, just like the Old Testament people of God. And just like the Old Testament people of God, we are tempted to sin by holding back our money from God. Jesus, like Nehemiah before him, has stern words for the person who lets money become their idol. Jesus has stern words for the person who refuses to be generous with what God has given them. But the thing is, the New Testament doesn't use law to demand our generosity. The New Testament doesn't say, well, everyone, bring your bank balance and we're going to check through it and work out how much you've given. That's for the Old Testament. The New Testament says, no, 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 I want you to give freely in response to the generosity, the grace you have received from Jesus. So we don't have a law, we have the encouragement of 2 Corinthians 9, look at it. Remember this, the person who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and the person who sows generously will also reap generously. Each person should do as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or out of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. See, what God wants 
is people who are not responding to law or threat, but people who are so gripped by the love of God shown in Jesus that they want to use what God has given him cheerfully to support gospel work. That's what Jesus wants for us. Well, we come to the last sin now that Nehemiah discovered. If the person next to you has uh, drifted off through one of the first three sins, give them a nudge now, come back for the last sin. This one was about working on the Sabbath, verses 15 to 23. So look from verse 15. It says, At that time I saw people in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath. They were also bringing in stores of grain and loading them on donkeys, along with wine, grapes and figs. All kinds of goods were being brought to Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And then if you go down to verse 16, the Tyrians, they were Gentile people, they were setting up stalls in town on the Sabbath and selling their goods. And you can imagine the Jews saying to, to, to Nehemiah, it's not us selling the stuff, we're not the ones working, but they were buying the stuff. And so Nehemiah wouldn't have been put off by that. So again, Nehemiah springs into action, he puts a stop to it. But look at the words Nehemiah uses in verse 17. He says, I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? That's serious language, isn't it? Rebuking, evil, profaning. What do you reserve the word evil for? We tend to think of, even now, people don't even think of murder as even, you have to do genocide to be evil, you know, in our world, that likes to think human beings are good. We, we preserve evil for things like that, don't we, for awful, awful things. Well, Nehemiah says, to work on the Sabbath is evil. Why? How can he say that? Why was working and buying and selling on the Sabbath such a big thing? Well, if you think about it, it's one of the Ten Commandments. In one sense, to work on the Sabbath is not to say, oh, I missed that obscure law in Leviticus 23. It was for them to say, I missed one of the Ten Commandments that God put there. And if God says something is wrong or right, then it is wrong or right. But behind that, and the reason God gives this law such importance, is the fact that the Sabbath really showed whether you lived for God or for yourself. That's what the Sabbath showed. The Sabbath law showed whether you really trusted God because keeping the Sabbath showed God is the centre of my life. Do I trust God enough to provide for me that I don't have to work every day? That's what it said. Am I actually willing to organise my life in such a way that I can spare a full day for God? See, God said you were to take this one day off in seven for two reasons. This is really interesting, by the way. Do you know, there's no scientific reason for having a seven-day week and the seventh one having a rest day. No other cultures came up with this. There's scientific reasons for why you have a month and why you have a year. It's about the moon and the sun and all that sort of stuff. You know how it works. I don't have to give you a science lesson and I'm not very good at science, but you know. There's no reason to have a seven-day week. And most societies didn't have it. It was only by God's grace that God said, for my people... I want them to have one day off in seven. And that was the first reason God gave for the Sabbath. It's, it's for our benefit, to rest from your business and your work. Rest is good for us. That's why Jesus said, the Sabbath is made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So God says, it is good to work. Don't be lazy. But put work in its proper place. 
the Sabbath was to remind them your business, your work, making money, that's not the centre of your life. It's not the most important thing. It's a means to an end. It's not an end in and of itself. The end in and of itself is the second reason for the Sabbath. You see, the Sabbath wasn't just a day off for them. The Sabbath was a day off to gather with God's people and remind one another of God's love for them and worship God together. The Sabbath wasn't a day to go and play footy. The Sabbath wasn't a day to go to the beach and have a barbecue. It was a day to meet together and praise God. So on the one hand, it was a day for them to rest, but it was also a day to worship. I found this great quote by Kevin DeYoung, uh, who's got this great book on the Ten Commandments. This is what he says. He says, these were the twin engines of the Sabbath, worship and rest. The two were inextricably linked in the Old Testament. We rest so that we might be free to worship God and we give God worship in part by trusting Him enough to rest. See how it works? So you rest, at least mainly, so that you actually have time to be able to give God and worship God, but actually part of worshipping God is the fact that you say, work is not my idol, work is not the most important thing to me, I'm able to have a day off to spend time with God. Now, when they worked on the Sabbath, they would have had all sorts of reasons, different reasons for different people. So, some would have been driven by a lack of trust. If I don't work, I might not have enough. If I don't buy this today, it might not be there tomorrow. To them, they needed the challenge, trust God enough that you don't have to do it, He will provide for you. But some would have been driven by greed. If I work this extra day, I can make more money. I don't know if they had time and a half on Sundays back then, you, you know, but, but it was a bit of that. It was, a, well, I can make more money if I work this day and then I'll be able to pay my house off quicker, I'll be able to go on nicer holidays. They needed the challenge, prioritise God more than greed, more than making money. But either way, they were failing to honour God by not giving Him this one day. Now, the question of how the Sabbath applies to the Christian is a complex one. We are not under the law. So I can't say to you, you must take a Sabbath, it's in the, that, that's not how we work as Christians, as New Testament believers. Uh, and so in term one next year, we're actually going to be preaching on the Ten Commandments and uh, I'm going to give a whole sermon just on the Sabbath law and I'll deal with the questions of should Christians take a Sabbath, I'll deal with uh, questions of what about if I've, I'm a shift worker, why is church on Sunday and not Saturday like the Old Testament, so have all those sort of questions. I don't want to steal my thunder before that sermon early next year. Uh, I don't, I don't want you to come back, no. Uh, but I think the key principle on this is really simple. If you want to apply the Sabbath law to you as a Christian, I'll tell you the sort of questions you should be asking. Uh, and by the way, I have a funny feeling Nehemiah might struggle with the choices many modern Christians make in this area. I think Nehemiah would probably pull his own hair out rather than our hair if he saw many modern Christians' attitude to this. You see, the principles are to ask yourself, do I trust God enough to say that I don't have to work all the time? Or do I just take whatever work I can get? That's one way, one question that comes out of the Sabbath. For some people, it's do I really value God more than money? Such that I'm willing to work less and have less in order to prioritise God and meeting with God's people? Or another part of the principle, do I shape my week in such a way that I make the priority spending time with God and with His people or do I shape my work around me and work and money 
and then fit God in if I can? You see, it's those sort of questions, that's how we as Christians apply the, the principle of the Sabbath. They're the sort of questions we need to consider. Well, I hope we've uh, heard all these challenges of Nehemiah, and I hope I've at least helped you start translating them to our situation. And I want to tell you, as we finish, in one way, Nehemiah and Ezra were a great success. At the end of the book, Nehemiah prays to God. Look at the end of verse 31. He prays and he says, Remember me, my God, with favour. And the wonderful thing is, God answered that prayer in abundance. Nehemiah is a hero of the faith. We're still talking about Nehemiah and we're still saying, let's be like Nehemiah today, you know, 2,500 years later. And Nehemiah didn't just build a wall, Nehemiah kept God's people alive when they were going to die out. If Nehemiah had not done everything he did, I don't know if you thought about this, Jesus could not have come. It was the end of God's plan of salvation. It was only because the people of God existed and the line of David was preserved by Nehemiah that Jesus could come and be our saviour. Nehemiah is a hero of the faith. He's someone to follow. He's, He's wonderful, as is Ezra. But on the other hand, out of Ezra and Nehemiah came the religion of the Pharisees of Jesus' day. So we look back and we say Ezra and Nehemiah heroes, the Pharisees looked back and said, Nehemiah and Ezra are my heroes. So the Pharisees who said to Jesus, you're sinning against God by healing a man on the Sabbath, came from this. And that legalism that that said, I'm going to cut a tenth of my mint plant and give it off, but then I'll keep all my other money to myself rather than help a person in need, that came from this. That wasn't Ezra and Nehemiah's fault, it's just a sad reality. You see, it's amazing how God's people consistently fall into one of two traps. And I don't want you to fall into one of these two traps as we apply Ezra and Nehemiah to ourselves. On the one hand, there are the Pharisees who have no grace and who get caught up in the minutia of the law and get so obsessed with keeping the Sabbath and tithing and all that sort of thing that they forget about grace. And then there's the cheap grace Christian who says, they react against the Pharisees, they say, I'm not a Pharisee. And then they say, Jesus has died for my sins, I'll live however I like. Sadly, for some reason, Christians seem to swing from that extreme to that extreme, from Pharisaical, liberal, uh, from Pharisaical legalists to people who say, it doesn't matter how I live. Both are wrong. The Pharisee needs to hear, we're saved by grace, not by works so that no one can boast. The Pharisee needs to be reminded that we will fail, like the people of Nehemiah's day did, because we're sinners, and that's why we need to keep turning, not to our works to save us, but to the death of Jesus on our behalf, who paid the price for our sins. But the cheap grace Christian needs to hear that a faith without works is dead. The cheap grace Christian needs to hear that Jesus has saved us to do the good works God has prepared in advance for us to do, that God has given us His Holy Spirit so we can actually live to please Him. We can live a life of joyful obedience. And that's the thing, you see, Nehemiah, and more importantly God, did not want people obeying His Word out of compliance. God doesn't want people who, who say, here's my tithe and resent it. God does not want people who keep the Sabbath out of obligation because Nehemiah was watching them and he might pull their hair. 
God wanted them to know His love and so then actually joyfully and thankfully seek to obey His law. And the same way, God wants us here not to be people who obey God's Word because someone's watching or because Phil says I must, but to be people who are so amazed by our Lord Jesus that we want to live to please Him. So that we don't hear His Word as some guilt-inducing obligation. I came to church today and they said, I said I should give more, do this and do that. But we hear God's Word as God's wonderful way to live that is best for us. That's why the law, even taught by the great Nehemiah, did not solve the problem. See, that took Jesus to come. Because the only thing that actually changes hearts is when people come to know Jesus. The only thing that actually makes people generous and committed to being pure for God is coming to know that Jesus has washed us clean by His death. It's the change that comes by the work of the Spirit through the Word of God. So hear the challenge of Nehemiah 13. If you've slipped in some of these areas, if you have have started allowing sin to fester in your life, if you are someone who has not been generous, if you are someone who's making bad decisions about your time and your money, whatever it is, make those changes to your life and your priorities. But I want to say to you, it's only knowing the grace of Jesus that will motivate us to do that for the long term. It's only knowing the grace of Jesus that will motivate us to long to do those things for God's glory, not out of guilt and obligation. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that we've learnt in these books of Ezra and Nehemiah. We thank you in particular for the reminder of your wonderful promises to us. But we thank you also that we see that like the people of their time, we are sinners and we cannot live to please you apart from the fact that we know Jesus. So we thank you that we do not try and please you just by obeying your law. Instead, you've sent your Son to be our Saviour. And now as people who know your grace and know your love, Help us to be people who live lives of joyful obedience to Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.